You thought there was going to be a panel. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Stephen Kroll, chairman of the Penn Children's Book Committee, and I'd like to welcome you all here tonight to our program, Writing Nonfiction for Children. I'd also like to apologize for Milton Meltzer, who was supposed to be on the panel tonight, but had to cancel at the last minute. So you will not be seeing him here, and he sends his regrets. Uh, you will be seeing everyone else, however, and I think we're in for an interesting and an entertaining evening. Uh, I would now like to introduce to you Eva Moore, who will be the moderator for the panel. Eva is an editor at Scholastic. She's been there a number of years, a long time, and during that time she has worked on picture books, novels, and a variety of nonfiction. Uh, she is the editor of a very successful historical series called If You Lived, and a recent science series called Simple Science. She is also the author of eight nonfiction books for children and three beginning cookbooks. I will now give you even more and the rest of our panel. Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome you also to our panel. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce the talented and versatile members of our panel. Each of these authors has contributed uniquely to the field of nonfiction for children. And though some have overlapping interests, uh, two have, have written books about Lincoln, two have written books about pandas. <laughs> uh, each has a distinctive style and purpose, as we'll be discovering this evening. After my brief introductions, uh, each panelist will talk a bit about his, her or his approach to writing nonfiction and why they write the books they, they write. Uh, questions and discussion will be welcomed from the audience after all the panelists have, have spoken. And we hope you've brought a lot, of, a lot of questions with you, or we'll have some after hearing the panelists' presentations. I'll begin the introductions with Russell Friedman on my far left. Um, Russell is the author of 37 nonfiction books for children and young people on subjects ranging from American history to animal behavior. Several of his books, including Children of the Wild West, Cowboys of the Wild West, published by Clarion, and Indian Chiefs, published by Holiday House, have been named ALA Notable Children's Books. Lincoln, a photobiography published by Clarion, won the 1988 Newbery Medal. His most recent work includes the biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, published by Clarion last year, and just named an ALA notable for 1990. And he's written a Holiday House book about the Wright brothers that will be coming out this spring. 
Uh, next is Ruth Bellov Gross, author of 21 books for young children. She has been called a librarian's dream by a librarian, <laughs> no less, <laughs> because of the thoroughness of her research. She has written on subjects both historical and scientific, as well as easy to read retellings of folk tales. Wearing her history hat, she has written books about Benjamin Franklin, Christopher Columbus, and George Washington's Times. Her book about pandas was a junior literary guild selection, and several of her science books have been named Outstanding Science Trade Books for Children by the National Science Teachers Association. Her most recent science picture book, What's on My Plate, was published last year by Macmillan. And she has a new book coming out from Scholastic Hardcover called You Don't Need Words, a book about nonverbal communication. That will be coming out this fall. Miriam Schlein has written 83 books. <laughs> Believe it or not, 83 books. <laughs> Both fiction and nonfiction uh, that run the gamut from young picture books to middle grade books. Six have been junior literary guild selections. Six entirely different ones were chosen outstanding science books for children. Project Panda Watch was named as an honor book by the New York Academy of Sciences. Fast is Not a Ladybug won the Boys Clubs of America Junior Book Award Medal. According to 20th century children's writers, Schlein's special talent lies in her ability to explain while entertaining. Her works, hers are works of charm and simplicity that have stood the tests of time. Uh, her new nonfiction book, Discovering Dinosaur Babies, will be published this spring by Four Winds Press. Okay, on my right is Ellen Levine, a lawyer, a former film producer, a teacher, a woodcarver, a cartoonist. <laughs> Ellen is a relative newcomer to writing for children. Her first book was published by Scholastic in 1986. She has already eight books to her credit, including a picture book, I Hate English, that was named an ALA Notable for 1989. Though that book was fiction based on fact, all of her other books are nonfiction. In addition to several titles in Scholastic's If You Live series, she has written Ready, Aim, Fire, The Real Adventures of Annie Oakley, and Secret Missions, Four True Life Stories, of which School Library Journal wrote, these stories are written with extreme simplicity and unaffected honesty. Levine's book is recommended for its all-too-rare portrayal of courageous men and women who face danger and discomfort to defend their principles. And Susan Kuklin is the author-photographer of books for children from ages four to adolescence. Her photo essays for young children, When I See My Dentist, When I See My Doctor, and Taking My Cat to the Vet, and Taking My Dog to the Vet, published by Bradbury Press, were all named outstanding science trade books for children. Among her books for older readers are Reaching for Dreams, a photo essay featuring the Elvin Ailey Dance Theater, and Thinking Big, the story of a young dwarf, both published by Lothrop. Thinking Big was a school library journal best book for 1986. And that's just a brief rundown of what these people have contributed uh, to this field. And I would like to uh, ask Russell, uh, Russell Friedman if he would want to say a few words about his work. Uh, as uh, Eva mentioned, I've uh, written books on a variety of subjects, uh, ranging from American history to animal behavior. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to spend my working life uh, 
writing about subjects that interest me. Uh, writing a book is uh, a way of satisfying my own itch to know. Uh, one thing that many of my books have in common <coughs> uh, have in common is uh, that they use uh, photographs as an integral part of the format. Uh, I've found that photographs can be an effective means of inviting a reader into the pages of a book, and certainly archival photographs can evoke the past uh, in a way that nothing else can. And not long ago, I received a letter uh, from a fifth grader, a boy named Alfredo Zorazzi. And he wrote, Dear Mr. Friedman, I read your biography of Abraham Lincoln, and I liked it very much. Uh, did you take the photographs yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and then he added, I'm a photographer, too. <laughs> uh, I value that letter not uh, just because of its humor, uh, but because of what the humor implies. Uh, did you take the photographs yourself, he asks. Uh, that youngster came away from my book uh, with the feeling that Abraham Lincoln was a real person uh, who must have lived the day before yesterday. Uh, that's exactly the response I'm aiming for. Uh, when I'm working on a book of uh, history or biography, I'm hoping to make the past seem real, uh, to breathe life and meaning into people and events that are dead and gone. Uh, when I begin a new book, I think of myself, first of all, as a storyteller. Uh, the word story, of course, comes from the word history. And by storytelling, I mean presenting factual material within a narrative framework. Uh, facts, in a literal sense, do not deny the uh, relevance of imagination. So whatever my subject, uh, I always have a story to tell that for some reason I feel is worth telling, and I want to tell it as clearly, as uh, simply, as effectively as I can so that the reader will keep turning the pages willingly and with a mounting sense of anticipation and discovery. Uh, because photographs play an important role in my books, I also start thinking in visual terms as soon as I settle on the idea for a new book. Uh, while I'm researching and writing the text, I'm on the lookout for photographs and other illustrations. I always do my own photo research uh, because I'm the only one who knows exactly what I'm looking for. And the uh, best photographs, of course, are the ones uh, that you didn't know existed. Uh, ideally, the photographs in a book should reveal something that words alone cannot express. The text, in turn, should say something that isn't evident in the photos. And the photos and text together should be orchestrated in such a way that they reinforce and enhance each other. Uh, occasionally, a book of mine is uh, called a photo essay. I always recoil when I see that term uh, because it somehow seems to diminish the importance, the primacy of the text. Uh, this afternoon, I looked up photo essay in my American Heritage Des Desk Dictionary, and I'm very happy to say that I didn't find it in the dictionary. 
Uh, photos add an extra dimension to a book, but they can never be a substitute for words. Uh, so to answer my correspondent Alfredo Zarati's question, now I didn't take the photos myself, but I did write the words, and it is uh, through those words, through the uh, suggestive power of language, uh, that I hope to make a lasting impression on my reader. Uh, I'd like to add just one more thing that is on the subject, but it's not exactly about me. I was, um, yesterday I was speaking to Phil Gerard, the executive director of Donnell Library on 53rd Street. He was telling me how the uh, current New York City budgetary crisis will affect the library system overall, and Donnell Library in particular. Uh, he said there are 82 branches in the system, and from now on, three-quarters of those neighborhood branches will be open fewer than five days a week. Uh, Donnell Library itself will be closed on Fridays for the first time in its history. Uh, beginning in April, the Central Children's Room at Donnell, uh, with its large and important research collection, will no longer be open Monday evenings, the only evening uh, that it is currently open. So it won't be open in the evening at all. And there will be no reference service uh, in the Central Children's Room on Tuesdays and on Thursdays because there will be no reference librarians on duty. Uh, overall, Phil told me, 165 positions are being eliminated system-wide, and the budget uh, for book purchases is being cut in half by 50% uh, for the remainder of this fiscal year. Thank you. Well, that was... Oh, this is good. This is gloomy. Uh, now we'll go on to uh, Ruth Bell of Growth, who writes uh, almost exclusively for younger children. Oh, I should... <laughs> Thank you. I should uh, add to Russell's bad news that I heard today that the uh, Central Research Library is cutting its hours, too. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it will close at 7.30 instead of 9 and will open at 11 instead of 10. So that's just more in the same direction, which I'm sorry to report. Well, I came to writing books for children late. I started when I was 40, which I think is probably late. Uh, and it happened very accidentally with someone who's in the audience who's a very dear and old friend, Beatrice de Renier. I had lunch with her. She was in editing Lucky Book Club, and I had just lost my job. And Beatrice said, why don't you think about writing a book? <laughs> just like that. So I said, oh, you know, fine. And before the lunch was over, we had hatched a a title, and uh, I think soon after they decided they would trust me with a $300 advance. <laughs> that first book was What Do Animals Eat? Uh, because we figured that kids all like food and they like animals. And I have been writing books since then. Uh, I guess if I tell you how many years you could add it up, kids always ask you, when did you start writing? How old were you? And, <laughs> and I have been doing just that ever since, writing books, loving it sometimes, hating it sometimes. 
I probably write the youngest books, or maybe not the youngest books on in this group, but probably the. I think yeah, Susan, Susan does some very young books. Mine are probably the youngest history or science books. Uh, children I write for are more or less in the seven, eight year age range. Some of them are a little younger, maybe a tiny bit older. And these are books that I feel I want to write for them to read by themselves. Um, it's simple books that kids can handle, a book about your skeleton. What is that alligator saying about animal communication? Books about <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, and like the rest of us on this panel, I think there are more similar similarities and there are differences here probably. And there are also a lot of people in this audience who could very well be sitting here because their books are, I think, is, they're, they're all, we're all good. Uh, but like the rest of us, I visit schools. And um, usually I talk to the kids about writing and I, show them how I do research and I show them my research cards and then I show them how many times I rewrite and how many drafts I do. And um, after one trip, I got a letter, which I would like to read to you because it's one of my favorite letters. Dear Ms. Mrs. Ruth Gross, thank you for coming to our school to tell us about your books. When I have an exciting time somewhere or have a terrible time, I think about writing a book. I thought writing a book would be fun, but the way you put it, I sort of changed my mind. <laughs> and then he added, I think you'd work faster if you got a computer. <laughs> well, I still work slowly and I don't have a computer. And it still is hard work, but I did write to him and say it's really not as bad as I made it sound because I didn't want to turn this kid off for life. Uh, another time, I went through the same thing and I got a little girl saying, I think I'll stick to fiction. So, <laughs> I guess, uh, well, you have to do a lot of research when you write nonfiction, obviously. How do I feel about what I do? Russell says he thinks of himself as a storyteller. I think of myself as a reporter. A reporter for seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, children who are having trouble decoding words on a page children who don't have much, who don't have wide experience, who are not sophisticated, but who are curious and eager and who want to find out about things if you can give it to them in a way they can use. And I think that's for me one of the joys of writing nonfiction. I'm not a specialist in any field. And uh, I think it's an asset and it's also a detriment. Uh, Chris, I think all of us become specialists for a short while. You learn everything and then you quickly forget everything. So I have to look things up in my own books. But not being a specialist uh, is harder because you have to do so much more research. But I'm comforted by what Margaret Mead said at one point. She said, to a physicist, even a botanist is a, botanist is a layman. So you're always somebody you're a layman in somebody else's field no matter what you are. I mean, you can be an expert in dinosaurs and be terrible at Abraham Lincoln. So <laughs> I start out knowing nothing, and I think it's really an asset. I don't know when I start writing a book on ballet dancers if they have wings. I don't know whether snakes have feet. I start out really being at zero. I 
am dumb, I don't know anything, but I have the joy of finding out all the things that turn up in my books eventually. And it excites me. I, I come running home to my husband and I say, hey, do you know how many eyelashes we have? Because <laughs> 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 I'm writing a book about the body now and it's, it's so wonderful to, I'll be in medical school soon, I think, but to know how exquisitely crafted we are. Well, that, that's what I do. I write as a reporter for my, my kids, that I feel they're my kids. But I also use my readers because I want them to tell me what they want to read. I mean, if I'm not going to write my books for them, who am I writing them for? So every time I go to a school, I say, I happen to be working on a book about George Washington's times, or I happen to be working on a book about uh, the human body. What do you want to know? What should I put in the book? because this is for you, or you'll be too old maybe when it comes out, but it will be for your younger sisters and brothers. And they really come up with some wonderful, wonderful things that I would never, never have thought of. In the book I wrote about alligators and crocodiles, I'm not sure I would have thought about, maybe I would have come to uh, conservation in the book. I'm not at all sure, I hope I would. But one kid said, are alligators made out of the same material as wallets? And uh, it, it made me think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is, these kids have thoughts that, that I don't think I would have thought of. They, so many kids wanted to know when ballet dancers have to retire. And that floored me, but it's part of the book. Well, what do I want for my books? I want them to be as accurate as I can possibly make them. That means an enormous amount of research. And I tend to over-research. I mean, to find out who won the Civil War, I may, may read three or 33 books and then ask an expert. <laughs> Maybe not quite so bad. But doing research is something like um, having a, a movie made on your street and you see the camera's out there for six weeks and you think, oh my God, my, my street's really gonna be in the movies. And then you go to see the film and it's 30 seconds. So you do so much more research than you ever can use, but uh, it's better that way. Again, as Beatrice, whom I'm looking at, said that you have a thin book if you don't over-research it. It's much richer this way and I guess her, her good advice, which I hope I still follow, is don't put anything in your books that the kids are going to have to unlearn, so be accurate. Tell them the truth. But don't, this is not the last book they're going to read on the subject, so don't tell them everything. If you do tell them everything, they, it may be the last book they'll read. So you do have to leave stuff out, and it's usually what you love best. But in addition to being correct and accurate, I don't want to be just correct. I don't want to just have all the facts like an encyclopedia because then what's the pleasure of it? I, I want it to make sense. Um, in my skeleton book, I said a skeleton is not just a pile of bones. It, it has to be put together. The bones have to be put together right. And so it is with a book. It's just not a pile of words. The words have to be put together right. Uh, I had written down here too what I like. William Carlos Williams said, a poem isn't made out of cloth, it's made out of words. So you're working with words and uh, 
I had an example, but I think I'm going to skip it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it's going to. Oh, right. Unless we run out of time. I was um, working in this new book about blood cells, or about cells. How many cells do we have? How many? What are the smallest cells? The smallest cells are red blood cells. Uh, how many do we have? Well, they're measured in cubic millimeters of blood. Well, it doesn't really kind of get to me when you say you have four million red blood cells in a cubic millimeter of blood because it, it doesn't give me any kind of graphic idea. But then I realized, and this is what I am doing, that a millimeter is a unit of length. A, a millimeter is about oh, smaller than a hyphen on the program if you have a program tonight. If you imagine a box, a tiny little box, an imaginary box, a cube made out of a millimeter on each, in each direction, that's a cubic millimeter. And the number of red blood cells that will fit into that are four million to six million, which is rather incredible. I hope I said it better in the book. <laughs> but it's better than just giving numbers for me. Well, what, do, what else do I want to do in my books? I have a sort of secret agenda, a hidden agenda. I want kids in every book I write, if I possibly can, to let them know that we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers. Every time I can possibly get a chance, I say, some scientists think this, some scientists think that, uh, and maybe it's because of something else. If I can find these divisions, I want to put them in, or I want to say, um, as I did in, in the book about Lincoln, that maybe the Lincolns had a horse, but nobody knows for sure. I want to have that, that openness that, that adults aren't all-knowing. We don't have all the answers, and we can disagree. And I think in one of my books, I did something that sort of pleased me, and it was also a cop-out, because it was a book about animal communication. And I simply couldn't finish. There's no way to tell everything about animal communication. Well. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Miriam. At the very end, what I said was this book tells you some things about animal communication, but it does not tell you everything. If you want to, you can find out more about animal communication and what you can find out. And then I say you can also find out more about animal communication by watching what animals do. You can watch spiders and flies and ants, and you can watch dogs and cats and birds. Maybe you will find out something that nobody knew before. And that sort of pleases me to think that I can put this idea in the heads of readers. Uh, I guess that ends what I want to do. Oh, are we finished? Do you have, yeah, do you Just, have I'm on my last okay. sentence. Okay, <laughs> thank you. That uh, what I want to do in my books, that I want to write so clearly and I want to make what I say so easily understood that it's almost transparent and that <laughs> I'm not sure I can do, but I work very hard to, to get in that direction. Okay. <laughs> she does it very well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my editor. <laughs> uh, now we have Miriam Schlein, who has the 83 books to her credit, and I'm sure she has a lot to say about those. 
I'm uh, thought of nowadays as a nonfiction writer, someone who writes science, but I did not start out that way. Started out writing young picture books. And some of these were animal stories, but they were, they were not science books. They were sort of hybrid form. They weren't uh, picture book animals that flew airplanes and wore clothes and lived in houses and so on. They lived in a natural habitat, and the elephants did elephant things, and the foxes did fox things. But they were not science because these animals uh, talked to one another, uh, naturally in English, and this is not science. How did I get from that kind of thing to writing science books? It happened in a very bizarre way. I marched into a friend's house one Sunday morning and said, so-and-so is a skunk. <laughs> and Sally looked at me, expecting some kind of juicy story, and I stopped dead in my tracks. And I said to myself, why did I say that? Skunks never did anything to me. And that little uh, event or non-event <clears throat> set me on a path that I have been following for 20 years or so because I then wrote my first science book, which was called What's Wrong with Being a Skunk? <laughs> um, this was kind of fun. And I went on to write um, other animal books. Um, among these were books on porcupines, bats, and most recently, pigeons. And one reviewer said I was the chronicler of unpopular animals. <laughs> and I don't, don't go out of my way to do that. Uh, I've written about popular, lovable ones like pandas and elephants. But very often, the unpopular ones are just as interesting or even more interesting than the popular ones. I think bats are far more interesting than pandas, for example. Um, how do I choose which, what I'm going to write about? I mean, there are thousands of different animals. There's an emotional push. Something happens that pushes you into it. I remember I was in the, in the Washington Zoo one time, and I saw four or five giraffes standing in a very small enclosure was no bigger than the little workroom that I work in at home. They literally could not take a step, and one of them was sort of nibbling on the top of the metal bars at the top of the enclosure. And I thought, well, it's, isn't that a terrible way for these beautiful animals to live? And I wrote my giraffe book. Another time I looked out the window and saw these two pigeons in a snowstorm facing inward on a ledge and the snow was coming down on them. And they were just braving it out because they have no place else to go. And I got interested in pigeons. Of course, I've seen pigeons all my life. No one pays any attention to them. I began to pay attention and wrote a pigeon book. Uh, I do go off the animal, uh, animal um, uh, away from animals once in a while. I did a book on King Tut, and I... <clears throat> was at the exhibit when it was in Washington, looking at all these beautiful things. And my reaction was, how was it for a nine-year-old to be Pharaoh? 
and I wrote my book from Tut's point of view. Uh, I called it I Tut. It was a sort of diary thing. Research, as Russell and Ruth have said, is the heart of nonfiction. Um, and that's the fun part. You read and read and read, and at a certain point, you have to stop. Uh, if you don't, you're like uh, Mr. Casaubon, who was a wonderful character in Middlemarch, who was supposed to be writing a book, but year after year, he kept taking these notes and putting them on little cards and never got to write his book. Uh, someone once asked uh, a writer, I think it might have been Sinclair Lewis, how do you start writing? And his answer was, you apply the seat of your pants to the chair. In other <laughs> words, do it. The research is a uh, discovery process. I don't know what I'm going to say until I start doing the research. And you get to know all these wonderful things, and there's a temptation to drop it all in, but you should resist this temptation because good nonfiction is more than a mass of facts. It has to be focused. It has to have heart. It can sometimes flow like a story almost. Um, sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes I like to um, start off with a little dramatic event that has happened. For example, in the giraffe book, I start out with people taking a giraffe off a ship. This is the first giraffe that has ever been brought to Europe. It was a gift to the king from the Pasha of Egypt. And it was fine until they got the giraffe off the ship, and then this animal was in a very strange environment and wouldn't move an inch. And finally, a, a man came by on a horse, and a horse looked more or less like a familiar thing to the giraffe, and the giraffe started moving. They fo followed the horse, and that's how they got it going. Um, Nonfiction sounds prosaic. It's, it, the way it's described is very peculiar. It's, it's, it's not fiction. It's like describing a, saying a girl is a non-boy or something <laughs> like that. Um, but nowhere is it written that nonfiction has to be boring or prosaic or dull. It can be written with style and grace. And uh, the language is very important to me, as I'm sure it is to everybody here. And that is not a given with writers, let me add. Uh, some people are just absorbed in the subject and don't really care about the words too much. I just recently saw a very nice quote from Joyce Carol Oates, who said, the subject is fully realized only by the grace of an author's language. Hmm. I've spent now a lot of years writing about animals, and it, I, I find it quite irritating when someone does a particularly horrendous thing, people start saying, oh, they're animals, he's an animal. And I think animals, um, human beings devise much more horrible things to do to each other than animals could ever think of. Uh, I more agree with Pierre David, who was a French priest who went to China uh, to teach there and also to be a naturalist. And he incidentally discovered the panda, was the first Westerner to know that there was such an animal. 
And in his diary he wrote, it is unbelievable that the creator could have placed so many diverse organisms on the earth, each one so admirable in its sphere, so perfect in its role, only to permit man, his masterpiece, to destroy them forever. Um, and I think in my books, I, if young people <clears throat> get to feel that way, it may, it may help help the animals. Uh, I came to the dinosaur business very late because I, I found <laughs> living animals more interesting, um, you know, more, they needed our help more than the dinosaurs. You can't do anything for the dinosaurs. <laughs> but this is my first dinosaur. This is a sneak preview. It's, it's, has, it's not published. These are folded and gathered sheets, as they're called. It's about dinosaur babies. And um, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, next we have Ellen Levine, who's the new kid on the block, kind of. <laughs> I recently read a, uh, an article in the Times, an article that every couple of years they run about how we're uh, training, testing, some might say torturing our infants taking 18-month-old, two-year-old kids and testing them to, to see if they're smart enough to get into certain kind of little pre-school schools. And if they're good enough for that, then they can get into prep schools to get into the right colleges to get a job and make a lot of big money. And you really wonder, what is it that we're turning out? I mean, do we want a child at age two and a half to be so centered, to so know what the goal in life is. When I talk to kids in schools, and I've been doing a lot of it, uh, as we all do, I tell them that when, when we get to the whole discussion of what do you want to do when you grow up, which is always a, a big question, that I used to change every week. It was whatever was happening, whatever was, uh, was interesting, me, it caught my attention, something I read about. There, and I'm happy to report that there are still children out there who are changing their fantasies every week and are still uh, engaged in exploring. But I had one that lasted longer than some others. I don't know, I, I was pretty young, and I don't know where I, I heard about hobos whether I read about them, heard about it on the radio, but it intrigued me. People, I, I, I paid no attention to the socioeconomic background, but people who would hitch on trains across country, what a way to see the world, what an adventure. I tell that to kids because it's part of why, it's a very important part of why I write nonfiction. I love fiction, I love reading fiction, I've written some fiction, I'd like to write more, but there's a very special place in my heart for nonfiction. It's a world of adventure, the way the hobo had adventure. That was, that was what I wanted, new worlds to open up, meeting new people even if they lived 200 years ago. Writing nonfiction gives that chance, opens those doors. You, you can find out about things, as Ruth says, you know absolutely nothing about, or things that you know a little bit about, would like to know more, or things you think you know about, and you find out you don't know very much about. 
But whatever it is, it's a tremendous learning adventure. If I am not engaged, I can't give it back in the form of a book or anything else to engage kids. There was another article, I don't know if any of you saw it, we've been talking a great deal in this country about illiteracy. This was an article about illiteracy, about young people as well as adults who know how to read but choose not to. A very frightening statistic about kids, the, the precipitous decline after the fourth grade and the number of books, one if any, that a young person will read for pleasure in the course of a year. I inconceivable to me. A childhood and an adulthood spent curling up with a book is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if you can convey that kind of excitement to kids, and I think one can do it with nonfiction. People always think that it's only fiction, is, as, as Miriam said, is, is the world of the imagination. And as Russell was talking about, nonfiction is very much that. For me, another kind of engagement and very important part of why uh, I ha nonfiction has such a special place for me are concerns about social and political questions. For example, I wrote a book about the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Now, you could read that book and you can say, this is very interesting stories about this particular event, uh, what different people did, how a man named David Frazier uh, sleeping in a folding cot at 10 of after five in the morning, was almost killed when his cot collapsed on him and closed him up inside it. There are all kinds of interesting stories like that. But for me, and this is part of the challenge of writing for young people about nonfiction issues, there was a real social political framework. The question being, how does a community respond to a crisis? Now, I couldn't talk about that in those words to young people. But that's what I wanted to talk about. I didn't use the word infrastructure. We're hearing so much of it today. Uh, but that's what I was talking about. When, what do you do when there are thousands of people who've lost their homes? When you've got an entire city, how do you, how do you provide food? How do you provide water? There's no running water anymore. How do you put out a fire? Fires that rage for three days. How do you find each other? How do people find each other when they're separated in this kind of a catastrophic event? That to me, those to me, were, were important questions. Those were a framework in which all this information, which was totally fascinating, was filtered. It's much easier to see those kinds of frameworks when, when I deal with more overtly political issues. I, I've written a book about the Underground Railroad and about the Civil Rights Movement. But writing about those kinds of subjects gives me a chance in nonfiction to raise issues that are very important to me. Today, the, the language seems to change every two years. I once worked for a, a producer on a documentary film, and he had a theory that um, ideas are fads, and they last for two-year periods. I hope he's wrong about some of them. But there, there are terms that become popular. The phrase these days I think that they're talking about in schools is critical thinking. They want to teach kids skills in critical thinking. That's basically learning how to question. Writing a book about the Underground Railroad, Eva was my editor, and I had a brief but to me very important section that we talked about that I wanted to keep in that book. It was that there were presidents of the United States who had slaves. Now this, this, to me, was very important to let young kids know. 
for many reasons, not the least of which that authority figures aren't always right about everything. Um, and we talked about it, and it's in there. It was very important to me when I wrote a book about the civil rights movement to, be, to convey to young people that authorities that are supposed to be supposed to uphold the law, enforce the law, were often the most lawless. That Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama was the commissioner of police. That police riots were taking place. If young people today who, depending on what they're given to read and what's out there, learn about the civil rights movement, what was the big movie, Mississippi Burning? Whatever else you may think about that movie, if a young person went to that movie, they would come away thinking the FBI, FBI was the hero of these events. The FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who publicly, publicly stated the FBI was not in the business of protecting civil rights workers, he was going to have nothing to do with that, made perfectly clear what he thought about Martin Luther King and all these other outside agitators who were coming into the South. It was very important to me. Now, these are young kids I'm writing for anywhere from seven to 12, depending on reading levels and interests. But I wanted to convey that our government takes some good actions and some not so good. And that the FBI, there are television shows, there are movies, the great heroes, as well as, as Mississippi Burning, the FBI was not a hero during this period of time. Critical thinking. What's the difference between a strong man and a dictator? I mean, was Saddam Hussein a strong man seven months ago, and today he's a dictator? Uh, I used to talk about that kind of thing when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, and I was a teaching assistant in, in political science, and I had introductory poli-sci courses. And very often in the beginning, that's how we'd start out, talking about that kind of thing. I mean, what is a strong man? Is that somebody we support, and a dictator is somebody we don't? I can't use those terms, talking to, to young kids, but I want to let them know that there are questions, questions that they can ask. The Just heard them reported. Peter Jennings on ABC, apparently, either on some show specifically or talking about a show, raised concerns about our young children who are watching war news and uh, how we have to reassure them that they are safe because it's happening over there and it's not happening here. Mr. Rogers apparently did a program with the same uh, import. Well, is that all that we want to tell our children? That it's okay, they're getting killed over there, but you're safe? Now it's important to talk about safety um, and security. But young people can absorb and handle much more complex material than we often give them credit for. I've just finished working on a manuscript, another manuscript on the civil rights movement, where I went down south and talked for, with many, many blacks who were young at the time of the movement and ac actively involved, didn't just live through it. Seven, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, who knew what they were doing? when they went on those marches, who knew what was happening when they were hosed by Bull Connor's forces, who had, and one of the most remarkable things, we, we are trying to 
to direct our, our two-year-olds by, by testing them and sending them and training them to take tests, all of these young people that I met in the South, regardless of their circumstances today, and some are living in a kind of poverty that they lived in 30 years ago, and some are successful uh, in, in terms we all recognize and understand, all of them, to a person, have a centeredness because they were involved in something that they believed to be right and true and good and that they were at the right place doing the right thing then. The last thing uh, I'd like to, to say, and I hope somebody asks a little bit more and we get to talk about research, um, because as Miriam says, that's, that's the heart of nonfiction. But I know I'm running out of time, but the last thing that's important to me, my agenda, uh, I wrote a book called Secret Missions, um, Four True Life Stories. It's stories of four people whose names nobody's heard of, uh, who risked their lives for causes that they believed in. And they span the, the centuries from the, the American Revolution to World War II. And the, last, the fourth person in the book is alive today, which was an interesting research problem, finding her and tracking her down. She was a Dutch teenager at the time of the Nazi occupation of Holland and joined the resistance as a, as a late teen and in her early 20s and survived, the only one in her family. And it's, and it's her story. Her name is not a name anybody, anybody knows. Very important, I think, that young people today understand that heroes, heroes can be and often are ordinary people just like themselves, that they too can reach and stretch, believe in something and act on it. And nonfiction, nonfiction are stories about real people, real events. You're not reading a wonderful novel about somebody who did something incredibly gutsy and incredibly brave and, and reached and stretched. You're reading about somebody who's real, who lived, who's like you. One of those stories is about a man named Alexander Ross. I found out about him in a footnote when I was researching my first book on the Civil Rights Movement. Alexander Ross was a young Canadian teenager at the time that Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin came out. He was blown away in the parlance of the day. He could not believe what he was reading and felt that he had to participate, had to do something, had to be a part of the struggle to free American slaves. And what he did is extraordinary. Alexander Rose, an ordinary kid, maybe not so ordinary, but ordinary, he came down, worked with Quakers, learned all the different underground railroad stations memorized all kinds of map information, and went south, pretended to be, he, he had a, a, a real interest in, in um, animals and plants, and pretended to be a naturalist doing research, went to plantations, went to plantation owners and said, I'm here, this is what I'd like to do, I've, here are my sketches, I'd love to tour your land, your plantation, to see uh, what you have, can I do that? But of course, gracious southern hospitality, sent around with a slave. And he would talk to, to the slave uh, and 
fortunately never made a mistake in, in picking somebody that uh, he thought would, would be interested. Gathered groups of slaves, gave them information, told them the, uh, the routes north, gave them uh, some money, little packages of food, some knives, and sent many, 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 many slaves on their way north. He himself was finally was caught and was saved by uh, a, a slave who, on the route running away that he had helped, heard that he had been captured, came back to say, I'm here, I'm not running away. What's so wonderful to me about Alexander Ross, among other things, is he was inspired by a book. <laughs> okay, now we have Susan Kuklin, who's the only photographer author on the panel. Um, my books, as I started out as a photographer and came to writing through the back door. Uh, needing someone to write my material for, for the book pictures I was taking. Um, they're really, my books are really an outgrowth of documentary filmmakers of the 60s. I was very interested in cinema verite. Uh, Frederick Weissman films are very important to me. Uh, and so I decided to, to sort of do the same thing, but do it in, in books, in nonfiction books. Currently, I'm working in two areas. One is for very young children, ages three to six, uh, and the other section is on young adults. And oddly enough, when I work with the people who I work with, I treat them pretty much the same, and there's not much difference in my approach to the work. The very young children books are much more photographic and much shorter, uh, and my, my YA books are on, on difficult subjects. Now, the subjects that I've been working on lately are ones that I couldn't do 10 years ago. Uh, my latest book out is called Fighting Back, What Some People Are Doing About AIDS, and a book that will be published is called What Do I Do Now, and that's about teenage pregnancy. Um, I think that stark reality has, has, uh, has really hit kids' lives in a way that it has not hit our lives when we were growing up. And I don't think we can sugarcoat it. It's there. It's, you hear the news tonight, and, and it's right in front of us. So I have no intention of sugarcoating my books. They are very realistic. They are quite graphic. And I'm really fortunate that my editors are, are uh, willing and able and, and very helpful in allowing me to do that. I thought it'd be important to tell you how I work because I'm, I mostly work through, through interviews with real people rather than, than uh, research in libraries. When I pick a topic and, and, have, and work with a publisher, neither the publisher nor I know exactly what I'm going to be writing on, so a great deal of trust has to be evoked. We bounce ideas around with one, uh, with one another, but, but we really don't know where the book is going. In Fighting Back, I knew I wanted to do a book about AIDS, and I knew I didn't want to book, do a book about somebody getting AIDS and then dying. I wanted to do something that would be very helpful to the community of people who were dealing with it. So I, I went to organizations, and that's where how I work just about all my books now. I work through an organization. In Fighting Back, I contacted GMHC, the Gay Men's Health Crisis. In my new book on teenage pregnancy, I work through Planned Parenthood. 
with my, my preschool books, I do that too. In going to the ballet, I worked with the Joffrey Ballet School and going to uh, my nursery school, I worked with First Presbyterian uh, Church Nursery School. Both, uh, both groups are, are groups that I really uh, respect tremendously. Now, I spend a great deal of time in the startup of a book. I spend a great deal of time working with uh, the organization. With Gay Men's Health, Health Crisis, I took the course to become a buddy. I don't know if you all know what, what happens there, but I was working with a group of buddies who go out and help people with AIDS um, with daily chores in their lives as they live with, with the, with the uh, illness. Uh, so I took the course myself. I was assigned to, well, I chose a group. I chose a group that I thought had a, had a very interesting group of, of people who, who had interesting stories and interesting backgrounds. I never began to write or to photograph for months. I spent time with them. They got to know me. I got to know them. Um, we shared lots of gossip. We, I knew who was doing what to whom and all sorts of things like that. And every time I was with everyone, I took notes. I took very careful notes of, of ideas, of inferences, but I never did anything until we were completely clear about what I was going to do and that I was completely trusted and had a free hand to do what I wanted. Once that was established, and I, as I said, it could be months, uh, once that was really established and we were all comfortable, I began tape recording and photographing. From the organization, and after doing all that work, uh, from the organization, their clients, the people who had AIDS or with Planned Parenthood, the people who came for their pregnancy tests, were the people that I, in, that I began interviewing. I interviewed them because the the, the uh, professionals who were working with them would ask their permission and would explain who I was and what I was doing. Now, always when I interviewed, it was always clear to the people I was interviewing that, they ha that, that this is what I'm going to do, this is what's going to be included. There were many times when the interviews would remain anonymous, and we worked together describing and giving new names and new identities so that, so that especially the kids, especially the pregnant kids, would um, uh, feel very secure and know that they were not going to be found out. That was also true with many people with AIDS who could have lost their jobs uh, for coming forth and saying some of the things that they said in their books. I'm really fastidious about that. I want to be very, very clear that, that, um, that um, the people who are willing to talk to me I will be very careful in working with them. Now, in doing that also, I do more than one interview. I don't just interview someone and then leave. I'll sometimes interview five, six times. Uh, we have telephone numbers back and forth. We call each other. After the first draft, when my editor sees the tabs, I read the tabs off to the person who, has, who I've interviewed, and we go through some of the questions. It's very helpful to do that because some interesting things can occur. For example, in... What Do I Do Now, the book on, on pregnancy, uh, in my first chapter, I talk all about a girl who got pregnant, and uh, my one question was, well, why didn't you use contraceptives? I mean, I always ask that. And, <laughs> and they always had the same answer, and they didn't really know. You know, they just didn't think about it. And I asked her mother, who had lots to say about it, but she didn't know. And I wrote that all down, but then my editor, who was sitting here, happened to put a little query saying, well, why didn't the boy use 
contraceptives, uh -huh. which I had completely overlooked and forgot to ask him, uh, because that's what happens. I get very, very involved in the lives of, of some of these kids and these people. Uh, so I called the girl, and I said, why didn't your boyfriend use contraceptives? And she didn't know. And her mother didn't know why he didn't use it. So I said, could you ask him? And she said, well, I had a very big fight with him. I said, well, could you make up with him by tomorrow? Because this has to be in. And she said, for the book, I'll do it. You know? So the collaborative relationship uh, between me and my subjects becomes very, very close. Uh, and we really share, share a camaraderie. Uh, let me back up a little bit. In working with the organizations that I work with, they're collaborators, too. It's just this whole big... It becomes sort of this amorphous thing that, that starts growing and growing. Uh, the people who are, in, who, are the, who are in Planned Parenthood or the people in GMHC are really the people who I use as my major sources. So I use them for giving out information. There's a lot of practical information in my books. But most of my books are about how it feels. How does it experience? How did you come up with this decision? You know, what happened? And... Uh, most of the feeling parts, as it were, are from the kids, and most of the practical information is from, is from the professionals. But I also try to get in a little bit about their lives. Who are taking care of these kids who are pregnant? Who is, who is performing this abortion? You know, who, is, who is placing a baby for adoption? So I like to give a whole picture of, of the personal aspects of what an organization is doing in dealing with this, this very, very specific, often, often very raw uh, subject. Um, trying to think where I'm, where I'm going with this. Uh, with my, yeah, my children's books, my real little kids' books, those kids get just as involved in the projects as, as the uh, young adult books. The children in my ballet, ballet class, I, I watched them for six months, and after... After a while, they were coming to me to ask me, is this position right? Is that position right? <laughs> uh, the nursery school, if somebody cut their finger, I was giving them Band-Aids. I mean, I was just there all the time. So the kids become very, very familiar with me, and when it's time to do the shoot or when it's time to start taking notes, they're completely comfortable and able to say what's really on their mind. After I finish everything, I give it back to my readers. Now, there's some cases where I couldn't. There were some people with AIDS who had died, and I was, obviously I could not give them the material uh, or were too sick to read it. There were some teenagers who had just had abortions. They were just going in for an abortion, and I went with them through the entire procedure of, of, of this. They wanted, you know, once they were gone, they wanted nothing more to do with it, so they trusted me to keep them anonymous. But for the other people, I would let them read the material. I would let the organization read the material. No one has ever tried to censor me, ever. The children have never tried to censor me. Uh, but they have corrected me, and they have found my mistakes, which I find very, very helpful. You know, uh, I remember one person reading something and said, this is really wonderful. Who is it? And I said, it's you. <laughs> and they said, oh, no, that's not me. So I had to rewrite. I mean, I had to do a lot of rewriting. Um, <laughs> I think it's really important that, that um, we don't pander to these kids. I mean, they really are in a tough situation. And I think it's important to show, to give them a true picture of what they're facing with, 
one of the reasons why I like to do it in an interview form and to work with teenagers telling other teenagers is I don't think they believe the adults anymore. I mean, I think that they'll believe the kids. And so in getting other kids to tell their stories and their feelings, they're not so alone. They're not, they're not isolated in what they're feeling and what they're doing. And the, the, uh, the kids really rise to, to, the, um, to, to, the, to the battle. They really want to get out there and talk about it, which is, is um, for me, it's kind of wonderful. I hope more publishers take, take this stance. I hope more people will, will deal with these tough issues and not try to whitewash them. You know, just really, really show what it's all about in a very realistic way. Thank you. Okay, I think we've met some very interesting people here, and I hope you have some questions. If anybody has a question, I'm entertaining questions <laughs> for any specific author or in general. Or How do they select? How do they select the material? What? I mean, how they select the material? I can take that one. Yeah. I think you just tell them. I mean, they're hearing an awful lot of truth these days. Uh, in fact, they're hearing an awful lot of lies these days, too, I think. I think you just be as honest and as straightforward as possible, and you tell them. I don't think you hide it. I think if you keep hiding it, they're not going to believe you because they're much wiser than we give them credit for being. Even the little ones are pretty wise. I think that you tell them. That, that's what I was saying also, why it was important to me to, to even with young, young children, uh, eight and nine, to get in information, in uh, political information in books about, uh, about our government or about government officials and about roles that they play, both positive and negative.
Does anybody on the panel have a, a I, puzzling? I'm not sure this is going to be an answer, but I know that when I wrote a book about pandas the first time it came out, we s said uh, unless people hurt pandas, the pandas will probably uh, live forever. And a few years later, there was no more bamboo in China. So we wrote a new ending to the book, or I wrote a new ending saying that uh, the pandas may starve to death. I don't know if that's the same kind of answer, but I think you just have to say what's happening. I yeah. can't imagine. Yes. Yes. We just have to. Yeah, it's difficult. Every every publishing house has its audience, and you know certain publishing houses, uh, you know, who, who cater to you know children directly may shy away from uh, unknown people. But other publishers, if it's an interesting story, would be uh, I, open to it. I, I have an experience a little bit like that, um, but I I think it's a real problem. Uh, I have, there are, I'm in a similar situation. There are uh, a number of people that I would like to write about that I know I'm going to have a hard time selling because they're not famous people. Publishers, many publishers tend to want another story about Madame Curie. Um, and it's very hard to say, but here's, uh, here's a really interesting person. One experience I had that I pass on to you is I wanted to do something on Annie Oakley. Now, it, you know, it, it could be interesting, maybe not. Well, my editor suggested to me, write a good proposal. <laughs> well, I sat down, I, I went to the library and spent a week, and I tell you, shame on Irving Berlin and shame on Dorothy Fields, as wonderful as that music is, the real story is so much better. She had a childhood out of Dickens. She did get a man with a gun. She didn't throw a match. He, he recognized that she was wonderful. He stopped his own shooting career so he could manage hers. Uh, it's a marvelous story. And I, after doing a week's worth of research, I sat down and wrote a very dense three-page proposal, single space, and sold the book idea. Uh, and I don't think I would have sold it, because just in talking about it, well, another thing on Annie Oakley, what is she, you know, just a, she's this shooter. Um, it was fascinating, fascinating material. I don't think, even though with nonfiction, you know, short proposals, sometimes you, you raise a, a, an idea with an editor, 
with something that's difficult, which it often is, with a biography of someone who is not known, you've got to make them known. That's the, that's the, only, that's the next route I try. I did a three-page proposal, single space, <laughs> not wide margins. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because it, it shows that there's a, it's a story, you know. So you're going to grab the kid's attention because it's a story, even if they've never heard of the person. Um, and and a lot of acquisition committees, <laughs> uh, you know, want you know want something dramatic or. You had a question. <laughs> and I haven't read children's books for many decades since I was a child, and I read avidly in nonfiction. I can't wait to read some of the books with you. Uh, Isn't that nice? Uh, I'm very interested in how you reach the audience. You mentioned going to schools, um, I'm sure libraries, and how to play. Okay, I'm, my question is how do you reach your audience? Marketing children's books must pose different challenges than marketing adult books. Use, for example, you know, play as much of a problem. You're not reviewing directly for children. You have to go through other hoops, so to speak. You're writing for children, but you also, it seems to me, are uh, having to catch the attention of their parents, their teachers, their, their adults, the adults. So I wonder how you mediate between all those different groups uh, in order to reach your audience. In other words, I'm interested in that both in terms of the writing, the presentation, and the economics of writing for children. Well, I can give part yeah. of an answer, okay. because uh, a lot of us write for book clubs like Scholastic's Lucky Book Club, and the kids choose the books themselves. The books go straight to the kids in school, and they decide they want to read a book about whatever it is that we've written, so there is not a teacher choosing it or a parent choosing it, the kids choose. I mean, that's one way kids get books directly. And they're yeah, the mail order books. Nonfiction books. books are marketed like every other book on a publisher's list, and uh, I think we, we think that li a li the library market is stronger for nonfiction, usually, than the trade market, but I know at Scholastic, we publicize nonfiction the same way as we do fiction, and it reaches its audience, kids who are interested in Abraham Lincoln or teachers who've read about this book, and, and reviews play a part. The books are reviewed in institutional um, publications like School Library Journal and ALA Book List. And bookstores, right. Right. That that's true, and I think I think it's interesting. I mean, the trade sales are usually I don't I don't know Russell if you'd agree. I mean, uh. Uh, children's books. Uh, the typical children's book is sold primarily to the institutional market, to uh, public and school libraries. Uh, however, that is changing. There are now more than uh, 200 uh, bookshops in the United States uh, that sell uh, children's books exclusively, more than 200 uh, children's bookshops. And the people who um, run these shops uh, know children's books. They love children's books. Uh, they uh, keep up with uh, what is being published. 
uh, they buy selectively and uh, uh, very cleverly. And uh, if you walk into a store like Eeyore's, uh, there are two Eeyore's, I believe, in um, New York, one on the east side, one on the west side. There are other uh, children's bookshops in New York. Uh, you'll see, I think, as large a proportion of uh, current titles as you will see uh, if you walk into a chain bookshop and uh, where you'll find only a certain proportion of the new adult titles. So I think parents go into the bookshop and they um, get the advice of the um, informed staff. Also, uh, Parenting Magazine, this is just one example, which I think is very widely read. It has a large circulation. Uh, they have a major article every year around Christmas time on children's books, a list of the year's best books. It's quite a long list. I think there are something like 100 books on it. Uh, the New York Times has two uh, children's book sections every year. Uh, most other, uh, most regional newspapers, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, so forth and so on, have children's book issues. There are plenty of ways for a parent to uh, uh, find out what's going on uh, and uh, uh, to make uh, informed decisions about uh, which books uh, they want to buy for their kids. But the fact remains that most children's books reach the intended reader through the library or through the school, I think. Over there. I found that with a, um, I, I wrote a book about veterinarians and uh, three different kinds of vets, farm, small, pet, and zoo vets. And when I was talking to the, the zoo vet, I spent a lot of time there, I said, what kinds of questions do kids ask you when they come through? He said, oh, the first thing I want to know is what do you do with the dead bodies? <laughs> <laughs> and when I raised that, um, the first reaction I got from an adult was, oh, no, you're not going to put that in the book. I said, this is what kids want to know. And they want to know, how do you, you know, the I other thing is, we did put it in the book. Oh, yes, it's in there. Um, <laughs> necrology. <laughs> and, uh, and, and taking skins and getting them to museums. And I mean, in fact, I, I watched the chopping up of, of a dead body. Uh, it, Kids are exa exactly as you're saying. It's been my experience, yeah. Well, I 
have a oh, section on uh, in my tuck book. Uh, this is for young children, and I just tell it the way it is. And no, the editor uh, did not ask me to take it out. I say it took 70 days to prepare his body as a mummy so that he may live forever in the land of the dead. They withdrew his brains through his nose. They cut his body and removed his intestines. He was wrapped in linen, jewels and flowers were thrown over him. Then his body was laid on a sledge. Red oxen pulled it to the temple. Uh, goes on. But um, it's a very respectful thing and nobody objected to it that I know of. Right. Big chunks. Oh, big chunks. Okay, we have another question over there, sir. Uh, I don't know. If what do you I mean have, by concept? What kind of I have four concepts. Oh. Uh, some of my uh, earliest books were, uh, one was about shapes, one was about speed, it's called Fast is Not a Ladybug, one was huh. about weight, heavy is a hippopotamus, and uh, another about time, it's about time. Now, I, I have never taught, I knew nothing about curriculums, people asked me did I gear them to the curriculum I didn't even know curriculum from a horse <laughs> but it just explains these things in, in um, children's terms and the, those books were in print for about 30 years which is very they good were, they, they were. there are a lot of concept books actually yeah. no no I have one here um, this is not a pop-up book. It just um, it's a picture, young picture book. Yes, they, they're, um, they're, they're constantly being published. <laughs> Authors are constantly thinking up new ways to approach the topic because it's, especially with the baby boom, there's lots of babies. Well, they're very, very simple. You have to keep it very, very simple and graphic. I could Different read approaches. it just a yeah. little tiny bit. Fast is not a ladybug curling on a leaf. That is slow. What is fast? Fast is like a galloping horse, a bunny, an airplane, a speedboat. Uh, and it goes on that way. And I talk about slow things. And the fact that it's okay to be slow. <laughs> Everything doesn't have to be fast. Okay, up there.
well, I, I think as a couple of people said, Miriam said, the research is pure pleasure. I mean, you're just finding out things and looking in library books and talking to people. That's wonderful. But then when you have to write the book, then the fun starts slowing down. <laughs> and sometimes, well, there's always a point in, in every book that I've ever written where I just want to give the advance back and say, forget it. I don't want to do this book anymore. And actually, when I get to that point, I seem to be okay again. Um, I don't know. It's not easy to write. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Head and the gray dress, yeah. Many of the children in Israel are descendants of Holocaust survivors. They hear the word gas and they think of the Holocaust. These kind of questions will probably be asked throughout the world if this goes on for very long. How much would you dare to tell the children about the real Yeah. yeah. What, what age? I guess it would depend on the age, you know, of the. I mean, you wouldn't tell. Probably for preteens and. Well, I, I would think a lot would, we we could learn a lot from the curriculums that our teachers, the teachers' curriculums, when they start teaching world history, and if you're t teaching about World War II, it would be very hard to avoid that if you're going to be honest in your teaching. So, uh, I would look to the curriculums of, of uh, school school curriculums and, and see where they're placing, uh, where they're introducing subjects. I would not be in my. I would not be using this that material in my my preschool books, for example. But I certainly would with my young adults. So, but I, w I would go go with the teachers. You learn a lot from listening to teachers. There are some teachers here, and we talk to librarians and teachers. I talk to them a great deal. I like to know what's in their curriculum, what they're thinking, how their children are responding to them. I get a lot of ideas that way. Yeah. Can't give you an age yeah. at this yeah. point. Yeah. Anybody no, nope. here? <laughs> Can you tell us? <laughs> They're going to have to cut down on the number of titles being published, for one thing. That's what I've been told. Anything more about aggressively trying to get into the If the, uh, if it's a, an economic recession that is um, putting the lid on the amount of money that people are willing to spend as consumers and uh, on the amount of taxes that can go uh, into uh, libraries and schools, it's not a marketing problem, it's a social problem. The money isn't there.
good idea. Yeah. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. I happen to, you know, as an editor, I get the B. Dalton bestseller list, you know, every week, and and it just, it really. It, it drives me crazy. You know, they have <laughs> juvenile new series list, juvenile fiction list, you know, and they have, you know, books like Home Alone, which is a movie tie-in, Fear Ski Weekend, you know, the kind of thrillers, uh, and the number 10 is Secret of the Indian, which is a real book. But the juvenile non but the juvenile nonfiction list is where's Waldo on the beach? Where's Waldo Safari? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Shredder. They call this nonfiction. I don't know. Little Mermaid sticker book. <laughs> this is nonfiction. And it uh, I mean it drives me crazy because I think, you know, here we're publishing this wonderful nonfiction and B. Dalton doesn't know what nonfiction is. <laughs> I mean they and they have their Adult hardcover fiction, and, and then they have something called the hardcover list, which includes some adult nonfiction also, but they don't have a, even a, a, an adult nonfiction list. So uh, getting in, into, into the chain bookstores is very hard. You know, it's the independents who are more interested in, uh, in stocking it, and it's, it's a problem, and uh, we try to keep doing children's nonfiction. Uh, uh, at Scholastic, we do paperback editions too, so that helps. You know, it helps to earn off the uh, the advances we do for nonfiction. Mm. But it's one way we get to do more nonfiction, <laughs> so we get to do paperbacks too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly what some of these authors do. Uh, Ruth, do you? I, well, I do that all the time uh, when I do a book that's more or less a picture book, uh, such as a, a book about Christopher Columbus. I knew exactly what I wanted to have illustrated um, uh, when he wanted to, uh, he asked the queen, well, then he waited six more years for the queen to make up her mind. First the queen said, maybe. And I knew I wanted a queen saying, maybe. <laughs> and then the queen said, no, no. Uh, I knew exactly what, what I wanted to have illustrated. And I did indeed write uh, notes to the artist, which drove him crazy. He wasn't at all happy about that. But I, I know exactly what I want. So that, that's a good way to approach it. Because <laughs> most, yeah. most uh, writers don't are not artists either, so that's the most they can do. Nancy? Yes, Eva, um, in response to the question about educating booksellers or vice versa, mm -hmm. this um, three crawl of uh, mystery writers had the most wonderful event this fall, which was a party at Bristol Town Library with writers and bookstores, whether they were Dalton or Walton or the little bookstores in the suburbs. And, you know, as far as Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
someone would tell it. Here, this one. Okay. Um, I, I never work with the PR people at all. I have nothing to do with them. I work with the people in the field. Um, I worked with the group leaders. I worked with the, in the for GMHC for Planned Parenthood. I worked with the doctors. I worked with uh, the nurses, the therapists. I work. I never worked with anyone. I made it individually, uh, never through the no, never through the PR people. <laughs> That's the little trick of a photojournalist. It's really networking. I mean, it's who you know, who do you know, who do you know, who do you know. I mean, I met, I was at a party, I met someone who was a buddy who I thought was interesting. He introduced me to somebody else who introduced me to someone else, and that's how, how I met it. I never had anything to do with, I, I keep as far away from PR as possible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the Federation even knew about it until <laughs> the very end, and, and, and I did show it to them, and they were very, very pleased, fortunately. But no one's ever really censored me. No, I, I, met, I knew someone in the, um, well, I, I, as a photographer, I, I, one of my first assignments was working with Planned Parenthood. So I knew, uh, I knew somebody in the education department, and she was the one that introduced me to the people in, uh, it was actually in Bergen County in New Jersey. She thought I would get along very well with the people. It's really, setting types. I mean, she, the person at Planned Parenthood thought that the people at uh, Bergen County and I would get along. We would have a nice relationship, and they were right. Uh, that was also true with GMHC, the person who was the head of the buddy group in St. Mark's Place, and I would be great pals, and we are. <laughs> so so it's, it's never through the, the actual PR. Kit? <laughs> I think there's more nonfiction yeah, published. I mean there are more nonfiction titles published. I think so. Oh, you mean adult? Uh, are you talking about adult or juvenile? I thought that I saw that there were more nonfiction titles published. Either do you know if that's? Uh, uh, I don't. Not if you count paperbacks. <laughs> original titles. Yeah, original. I, I would it. say there's more yeah. fiction, but I, I think there's a lot of non. I think you know children's book publishers publish a lot of nonfiction, and um, and I know there were you know 19 or 20 notables on that nonfiction, you know, nonfiction notables, I'm which was certain that and 21 I saw a picture books so. uh, recently for the uh, number of titles published uh, in either 1989 or 1990, and there were more nonfiction titles oh. published, but I don't remember mm -hmm. the figures. Right. I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I think Scholastic publishes more fiction. But, uh, one more. Somebody. Oh, 
Somebody way up at the top there. <laughs> How many years does it take before you can make a living? <laughs> 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 Who makes a living? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering how much longer I'm going to have to write four books. You have to star in one of those mummy books. <laughs> <laughs> Someone told me ten books, and I think it probably was about right. But okay. the pitfall is that, that uh, uh, because of a, a certain ruling, the Thor power mm -hmm. tool ruling, publishers are taxed for things they have in their warehouse. So they used to keep things in, in print a long time. They no longer do so. So it's like uh, yeah. being a hamster running on a little thing. I mean, I've written 83 books, and I would hesitate to tell you what I earned last year it was very bad. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it well known that even in adult books, some of the bestsellers, the people and the, the writers, the authors of these books, still keep their jobs as editors or real estate salesmen, <laughs> because of the insecurity, uh, all the unknown factors in, in book life and book sales. Yeah. yeah, I would say most most of my writers have other jobs too. Um, yes. Yeah. She's an editor. Don't listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called multiple submission, and some editors will not mm -hmm. accept it. Uh, the important thing is to, I, I think, tell people that that's what you're doing, mm -hmm. um, because it's very hard. And I think most editors today understand that you're you're trying to make a living, and uh, if someone is going to hold a manuscript for three, four, five months, it's it's almost impossible. But the thing is. I mean, I did hear one person say, don't tell. Who cares? That's their problem. But I don't feel that that's right. I, I, I feel that, that if you're sending a manuscript out, you should say. But if Ellen, on the other hand, the, the old That's if you've published with that. Yeah, if that's if you've published, uh, if you've published with, with that at, uh, with, with that, that company before. Yeah, yes. No, yeah. No, yeah. Some people do that. Or what you can live with. <laughs> 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 I, I said it actually very cavalierly. I have never had a problem where I have not had a response in, in what I really thought was a very reasonable time. So that I myself have not done it, but I, but I believe in it, and I, and I believe that writers should, should be free to do it. Any more questions? Whip. I didn't. I think I was, uh, as Russell talked about, there was a real story there that was a very powerful one, and I, I sat and tried to present it in w without any imposed form, 
just taking the material that I had researched uh, and what I found out about her life um, and, and wrote it. I, I didn't have any... Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't do anything consciously that way except that I wanted to convey the drama and the interest uh, and the, the adventure of it, the way I felt it. Well, I don't know how, you know, I think it's marketed sort of 8 to 12. I actually older also read it. I didn't worry about that when I wrote the proposal. You know, I wrote it like I'd be talking to you and tell, telling you about what a fascinating life this, this woman had. Um, a, a, just a picture, a regular picture book. If you're, if you're not an artist, <laughs> with a. Uh huh. Um, publishers usually like to to have a selection of the illustrator. Uh, when this question comes up with me, I say, "Well, send a sample of the illustration, not the whole book done, you know, but a sample." Right, and then we can get an idea if it's if we think it works out or not. But um, generally, generally it happens that the you know the, the art director will select it. But th that's a way to get your artist is if if you send a sample. I I used to work at uh, Golden Books a long time ago when they did very good books, and. Um, most often, if something came with art, the art was really not professional. And I think art that is not really good will drag the manuscript down, unless you have some very wonderful artist. I would recommend against doing that. Is that, I, th I guess that's it, and we thank you all for coming, and thank the panel. <laughs>